to ill-equipped history where two best friends tell you about a random moment in history and we have a really fun time i'm morgan joan joined (laughs) joined by my lovely co-host emily hey y'all morgan joan (laughs) i don't i don't know what's going on uh I've noticed when I have harder days at work, my brain and my mouth don't really connect. Um, I was editing the last episode, uh, my last episode, and I heard all the times I just said the completely wrong thing. Um, So I'm going to try not to do that, but I'm not always conscious of the words I say. Uh, I had really bad COVID a few years ago, and my brain has never fully recovered. So (laughs) yay, brain damage. That's fine. Uh, I've been in, how many car accidents is it now? Seven. 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 Seven, if you count the truck being totaled a couple years ago. Um, I'm pretty sure I've just hit my head enough where, you know, words are just hard now. (laughs) Words are just hard in general. Yeah. You know, it's like that sometimes. It the is. human brain is so fascinating and also so faulty. <laughs> Just honestly. <sighs> it's impressive oh, how it can be both. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving last week. Yeah. 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 We are. Let's see. It is December. No. No, it's the last day of November. So tomorrow's December. I had to check my calendar because... Yeah. This is the future. (laughs) Hey, on the day that this is coming out, Nick and I will be heading to New Orleans. So y'all keep an eye out for some real fun stuff about New Orleans. I don't know when, but it's going to happen. So got a whole thing planned. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I will not be joining in on the festivities. No. Um, I will actually, I have a conference I'm helping present at in Pigeon Forge, like, that week. Like, the 4th through the 6th, so. Nice. I have my own. I won't be able to go on any fun sightseeing things, because it's a conference, but. Conferences are like that. Did I tell you why we're going to New Orleans? No. Nick bought another Jeep <laughs> in, in Sharifport, and I figured that if we were in Louisiana anyway, we might as well make it a long weekend and go see Sarah. <laughs> might as well. So, yeah, Nick was like, he found it on Marketplace, and I should, I know this, I should tell him no more often, but I can't bring myself to do it. So, uh, here we are, and it's, uh, it's, another, it's another Jeep. How do you guys fit all the Jeeps? We don't. Um, <laughs> I, I, I park I park outside. I've been kicked out of my own garage. My own three-car... <laughs> not three-car garage. I mean, it's a two-door, but, like, you can fit three if you maneuver it right. I, I don't have a parking spot anymore. Just The just pole wherever. barn's full. The pole barn's know, full I, of boat. <laughs> I have to move my car at least once. If I'm I'm visiting y'all because some vehicle has to be moved and yeah. replaced and 
I didn't tell you what happened. What happened? Oh my god. So, <laughs> so sorry, I just it like an epiphany. Um okay. So, you know how in the front of our house, the listeners don't know this, but our house is situated in um like the middle of a split mm-hmm. and there's like a road that's in front of our house that literally like no one ever uses. Yeah, they wouldn't and need to. There's no need to. And we have like a triangle of like wooded area in front of our house. And there's like a road right there. So sometimes we park vehicles right there. Like if we have guests coming over, people like to park there so they're not trapped in our driveway or things like that. We use that road all the time. Literally, we have had a trailer sitting in that in front of our house for months at a time. No one has ever said anything about it, right? Please tell me why Nick has our, one of our cars parked out there just because of logistics and like some, something was in the way. So he parked the car out one night in front of the house at two 30 in the morning, someone knocks on our door and the dogs are going berserk. Like it's two 30 in the morning. Yeah. I, Nick thinks it's an intruder, so, you know, he's doing intruder-like responses. It was a cop who was doing patrols in our neighborhood and said we needed to move the car so no one would hit it at 2.30 in the morning. One, our neighborhood is a dead end. There's one way in, one way out. You have to be back there for a reason. I don't know why the heck he was back here. Unless someone called That's to complain. probably what happened. At, but why make us move the car at 2.30 in the morning? Leave a note, my dude. Why? Why? You woke up my kids. <laughs> That's really annoying, and I'm very sorry that happened. Thank you. I mean, I was just b- bamboozled. <laughs> like, why? What? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> oh, man, that really sucks. Yeah. It's probably not going to stop us from doing whatever. But, like, no. I just think it's really weird that out of all the times. Why so? Why? Why 2.30 in the morning? Yeah. It sounds like a busy body at work, honestly. Yeah, Nick said he was really young and kind of acted like he had a chip on his shoulder kind of a thing. So, mm. probably a stickler for the rules. It's like, dude, people park on this road all the time. I don't know. Yeah, there's no ordinances against it. No. Right? I don't think so. And literally nobody ever drives through there. It's not like we're blocking yeah. both lanes of traffic. No. Because you're still parking, like, like a little bit on your yard, too. Yeah. And no one would ever need to use that little stretch of road in front of your house because they would use the little yeah. triangle to turn left or turn right onto the yeah. actual street out of the neighborhood. Yeah. The only this... reason people would use it is if they were, like, driving or going in a circle. I literally... The only time is when we have, like, a pizza delivery or something and they don't know where the house is. The GPS is kind of weird. And I've watched them, like, do a circle a few times. That's, like, it. Yeah. It's weird. I don't know. So, if you're the cop listening, (laughs) you can kiss my butt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's get into it, I guess. Let's let's get into this skit. Yeah. 
It's the 1970s. Researcher and professor Philip Zombardo is in his office at Stanford University. I'm very interested in the effects authority has on people and the mind. I want to design a study that examines this. Uh, sir, didn't Mr. Milgram already do an experiment on authority and obedience? Yes, he did. And it told us so much about how anyone can commit evil acts if they're told to do so. But what if they're given free agency? What does the other side of that authority look like? What are you suggesting, sir? Hmm. An inherently authoritarian structure. Unbalanced power dynamics. I've got it. We'll make a prison. Here at the university, we can get a bird's eye view of how young men react in these different power structures. Will that be safe? These will be young, intelligent college boys. What can really go wrong? Oh. Dun, dun, dun. Everything goes wrong. Oh, my God. Man, researchers in the 70s were on a whole different level. Today, we are talking about the Stanford Prison Experiment. We are going into my realm of expertise. Psychology. I'm a little scared. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is... I'm just going to go ahead, and I think I wrote like a long intro into this episode. This is going to be a very intense episode. Because this is an experiment with human participants on authority and power imbalances. Specifically designed to look at how prisons function. And how they kind of operate. And a lot happens. And I will go into detail about it. But just so you guys know, if you've never heard of this experiment, and if most people who've taken, like, psychology in college have heard of this experiment, it is very intense. So let me pull up my notes. I'm already, like, shaking, like, in anticipation Oh my god. I'm I'm flipping through these pictures and I'm already shooketh. It's, yeah, the the pictures are pretty intense as well. Like I said, if you're a psych major, you know this story. There's there's a movie about it that was made in 2015. Um, I, I haven't seen the movie, but I did see the trailer. And from the trailer, it looks like it does capture the intensity of this experiment. So... There are several different experiments that occurred in the 20th century that were very important for us to learn about human behavior, the human psyche, but would never, ever, ever be permitted in today's society due to ethical and legal guidelines. This experiment was extremely unethical. It did not start out that way, but it turned that way. And again, I'll go into it, but it gets very, very intense. The participants in this specific study suffered extreme emotional, physical, and psychological distress. The identities of the participants that I'm going to be talking about today, I've left anonymous. I think you can go out and try to find the names of the participants. I watched a documentary that was published, I think like the 80s or 90s, and they do name some of the participants, Mm -hmm. but I'm just going to keep them anonymous. So the prisoners that participated they have prison numbers and i will be referring to them as the prison id numbers the guards were a little bit more 
there's one that stood out and he was given a nickname that I'll go into, but they were more, they weren't as distinct as some of the, the prisoners. Just so you are aware, dear listener and Emily, this is not a fun story. This goes okay. into the essential torture of human participants and how not just the participants, but the researchers and those in proximity to the study became complicit in this abuse that was going on. Oh my God. So let's jump in on to the story. The principal researcher, his name is Philip Zombardo. He was born in 1933 during the Great Depression. He grew up in the South Bronx in a Sicilian family. Uh, this is a very interesting tidbit I did not know. So when he was in high school, he became friends with a man named Stanley Milgram. He had his own very famous experiment called the Milgram Obedience Experiment. So this and uh, Zimbardo actually kind of based his study a little bit off of the Milgram experiment. The documentary I watched even mentions it. And I'll go into it. This is another one that was is very highly unethical. Um, it was conducted after World War II. Stanley Milgram wanted to see, like, why so many people followed Nazi orders. Mm-hmm. Like, what was it about the Nazis that was so compelling where any average Joe would commit these atrocities? So, got to put on a blanket because I'm shivering. So I'm so excited. <laughs> not Excited is not even the word. It's like... The anticipation. Yeah. So in this experiment, he had the participant, the the subject of the experiment, and another participant who was, they're known as confederates, but they're people who act like they're participants, but they're actually in on the study. Okay. So the actual subject, he was placed on one side of like, like a buzzer board, and the other participant, quote unquote, was put on the other side. He could not see the other participant. So what the subject's task was is to list like a series of words for the other participant to memorize. And the confederate would say the words wrong. And if he got it wrong, the subject had to give the confederate an electric shock. And over time, the electric shock got more and more intense. The confederate was not actually being shocked. Oh, just acts like um, it. There was no... Yes. Oh, okay. So what the participant thinks the experiment is, is memory and pain. But what the actual experiment is, is above the participant, there is a researcher in a lab coat and a clipboard. And whenever the subject would say, hey, I don't really want to do this anymore. I think this guy's getting hurt. The researcher would say, please continue. Please continue. Please continue. And 60% of participants went to the end, past the point where the Confederate stopped responding. And the subject thought they had killed the oh other participant. Oh, my God. And what the going. fuck? So that is the obedience experiment. That is so fucked up. And it demonstrated that any person, and these were not people with a history of mental illness these were not people with psychological problems these were just regular people presented with an authority figure and they obeyed that authority what they perceived to be that authority 60 percent oh my god and that is not even what this episode is about that's just like that experiment 
But like I said, Stanley Milgram and Philip Zimbardo were friends in high school. And then when Stanley Milgram performed his experiment, Zimbardo was like, hey, like we learned a lot about obedience. I kind of want to know a little bit more about that. So between this experiment took place between August 15th and August 21st in 1971 in the Jordan Hall basement at Stanford University. So this experiment was designed to view how the concepts of authority and powerlessness affect the psychology of those wielding either within a prison simulation. Because in any prison, there's a huge power imbalance between the guards and the prisoners. So what Zimbardo wanted to find out, he wanted to see what makes people do evil things. Is it the environment or is it something inside the person that comes out in that environment? And he also, you know, during this time, the civil rights movement was going on. Um, There were protests against the Vietnam War. So there are these, like, rebellions against authority. So there's a bunch of other Mm -hmm. stuff going on socially that he was like, I want to do deeper dive into this. Um, And people's responses to an oppressive regime. Uh, So like I said, Zimbardo, he's a principal researcher. He was also a professor at Stanford of Psychology. So he recruited 24 white college-aged males through a newspaper ad. All men were randomly assigned the role of prisoner or guard, and all of these men, I think there was like a pool of like 70 or 80, maybe more. I didn't write it down. But they all had like, they were all interviewed, and they all had like some psychological testing done to make sure that there were no signs of like psychopathy or sociopathy or any kind of mental illness. Mm -hmm. So these are all like typical neurodevelopmentally healthy college boys. Yeah. And of those, of that pool, he selected 24 participants and they were randomly assigned. I think it was like a coin toss guard or prisoner. So extremely random. And then Zimbardo himself took on the role of prison superintendent. So he was like the head of the prison. Right. Oh, I wrote it right here. 70 people initially applied. Those with psychological issues, medical issues, and a history of substance abuse or crime were disqualified. All participants earned $15 a day. And again, this is in the 70s, so that was a good amount. Yeah. All subjects were middle class and considered intelligent. Previous convicts that had served prison time acted as consultants for the experiment because they tried to, they wanted to kind of replicate prisons as well they could within a basement yeah. of a university. So these consultants were brought in, like, this is what the environment looks like. This is what kind of happens when, you know, this is what guards tend to do, stuff like that. It seems as of, like, right now, sorry, it just seems like as of right now, it's not that bad. Everyone's a willing participant. You're just Mm -hmm. observing people in a dynamic. Yeah. Cool. Right. And everyone knows the point of the experiment. Everyone knows the point is we are looking at how prisons and, like, authority within prisons, how it functions. Right. So everyone knew they could either be a guard or a prisoner. And they went into it. Yeah. So on the very first day, at the start of the experiment, the prisoners who had been designated by a coin flip were actually arrested by police on the first day. So they're starting out the gate like they're arrested by actual police. Okay. They were blindfolded and taken to the makeshift prison one at a time. And upon entering, were stripped and deloused. 
So right off the gate, they're going through the very humiliating, dehumanizing process. Yeah. Like they're stripped completely naked. They're deloused or like sprayed with stuff. Each prisoner was then given a smock with no underwear. Each smock had a unique prison number. And prisoners could only refer to themselves and each other by their ID numbers. They were not allowed to use their names. And each prisoner wore an ankle chain around their ankle. Damn. So, so we're starting off the bat with, like, the dehumanizing right. and humiliating processes. Each prisoner also wore rubble, rubber sandals and had to wear a nylon stocking cap to imitate their head being shaved. So all of this was designed to be humiliating. And it was a constant reminder of the oppression they faced. And there was an immediate effect. The prisoners already started carrying themselves differently on that first day. They were already, like, slumped and wow, heads down, like, moving more slowly. That's wild. Yeah. So the guards did not receive any training on how to conduct themselves with the prisoners. I think Zimbardo was wanting to get a more naturalistic, like, what will these people do when given this authority? What will they do with that power? Yeah. So they were allowed to do whatever they deemed necessary within reason to keep order within the prison. Um, they were not allowed to touch the prisoners. They were not allowed to hit the prisoners. Okay. But whatever else they deemed necessary, they could do. The guards essentially made up their own rules. Their supervisor was an undergraduate student named David Jaffe. And he acted as the warden of the prison. So all the guards wore the same khaki uniforms, had whistles and billy clubs, which they did not use. Okay, good. As far as I could find out, um, at least at the beginning. And they all wore mirrored sunglasses to further disconnect from the prisoners and provide anonymity. So, like, when the prisoner were looking at the guards, they could only see themselves. They couldn't see their eyes. Yeah. Damn. Because uh, And Zimbardo wanted the guards to feel powerful. So those who were selected to be prisoners understood that they would undergo some uncomfortable situations, such as lackluster provisions, harassment, and mild civil rights violations. So they did know this going in. Like, okay. you will be treated as prisoners in a prison. Uh, at the beginning of the experiment, there were nine prisoners staying at the jail with three prisoners to one of three rooms. So three rooms, three to a room. And there were also nine guards that did eight-hour shifts, three guards at a time. So they were on a rotation okay. while the prisoners stayed full-time. Okay. So it was like the guards were like on a job shift almost. And then the remaining six participants were on standby to be called in, like if someone left the experiment. Yeah. So at the very first morning, at 2.30 a.m., the prisoners were woken up and made to stand for a count. And these counts happened every few hours. All throughout the night, all throughout the day. And the count was where the prisoners would line up and say their numbers over and over and over again. Uh, this happened multiple times a shift. And this is where the guards started exhibiting their power over the prisoners. And this was very disorienting for the prisoners because there were no lights and no windows. Well, there were lights, but there were no windows. So they had no idea what day it was, what time it was. All sense of time was starting to get really, yeah, really weird. Why would they do that, though? See, like, I looked at a bunch of different things, and I couldn't really figure out why. So there's one guy that's in the documentary, and he was a guard. Yeah. And he was known as, like, the most cruel guard. And he explained, and I, I do talk about this at the end, but I'll go and explain it now. 
he was like, I have a role to fill and I'm going to act like a guard that I think they want me to act like. But I think it was also, you know, some of the guards are like, oh, like I can make this person do whatever I want them to and they can't say no because I have more power over them. So it was kind of like this exploration of that dynamic of when people have power, what do they do with that power? Just being cruel to be cruel. Yeah. And so a frequent punishment that was used was push-ups. The guards would make the prisoners do push-ups for the slightest quote-unquote infraction if they talked back, if they didn't immediately follow commands, if they just didn't like you that particular time. One guard would step on prisoners' backs or have other prisoners sit or step on the prisoner doing push-ups. thought they weren't supposed to touch them. Like, hit them. Oh. They could, like, they could grab them, but they couldn't, like, beat them up or oh, okay. anything, like, physically assault them. But they could, like, touch them and grab them and stuff, which happened a lot. And even as time went on, like, that line started to get blurred a little bit with more aggressive behavior. And according to the article I was reading, uh, it's the Stanford Prison Experiment website. Um, and actually, Zim- Philip Zimbardo actually wrote the, the stuff on the mm-hmm. website. He's still alive. He's 90 years old. He's still alive. According to the article I was reading, this was a form of punishment in Nazi concentration camps. And there's actually a diagram on the website of a drawing that a prisoner did of Nazis commanding prisoners to do push-ups. And, like, even stepping on their backs to do push-ups. Oh, shit. By day two, rebellion. Yeah. So on the second day, the prisoners rebelled, removed their caps and their ID numbers, and they barricaded themselves inside their cells with their bed frames. Uh, the incoming shift felt they had to fix this problem, and they called three. The So the night shift is still there. The morning shift of the guards come in, and they're like, we have to get the situation under control. So then they call the other three, like, mid-shift guards to come in as well. So now all nine guards yeah. are here for nine prisoners. They grabbed fire extinguishers and began using them on the prisoners to get them away from the bed. So they were spraying the fire extinguishers into the the rooms to get the prisoners away from the That's doors. chemicals! Mm-hmm. The prisoners were then stripped and their beds were removed. Uh, so all the prisoners were stripped naked and the beds were literally carried out of the room. And the instigators of the rebellion were forced into solitary confinement. They had a, like a closet that was made in the, into solitary confinement. And the guards began to punish and harass the prisoners even more so. And at this point, the guard the guards realized that all nine of them couldn't be present all day and all night all the time. So they decided to start using psychological tactics against the prisoners. So the guards made one of the prison cells into a quote-unquote privilege cell. So three prisoners who had the least involvement in the uprising were awarded privileges. They got their smocks and beds back. They were allowed to clean themselves and receive special food. And they had to eat that food in front of the other prisoners who were not allowed to eat at all. And about halfway through day two, the guards put the privileged prisoners into a bad cell and brought three more prisoners randomly into the privileged cell. And then the instigators of the rebellion believed their original privilege group were informants. And so that solidarity and trust between the prisoners started to dissolve. And one of the consultants said this is an actual tactic used in real prisons to pit different groups of prisoners against each other. And that's why, like, 
prisons have different gangs. Oh, my God. We're still on day two. How many days? This, this study is supposed to... This this study is supposed to last for two weeks. Oh, shit. And we're on day two. So with this rebellion, the guards actually became closer together because they're like, it's us against them. Yeah. And so a shift in the experiment started to happen. To the guards, this was real life. This was survival. And these people, the prisoners, were actually bad people who deserved punishment. Oh, no. So they, they lost their objectivity as well. So this was no longer an experiment performed at a university. The guards started increasing their use of violence and control of the prisoners. And this whole time, the researchers are just like, huh, this is interesting. They're not doing anything to intervene. So the guards started controlling opportunities to go to the restroom <clears throat> at this point. And after 10 p.m., the prisoners would have to use a bucket in the room that the guards wouldn't allow them to clean. So now, like, human excrement. And these rooms are not very big. They're barely big enough for three beds. Oh, my God. And now they have a bucket of excrement that they can't clean just sitting there with three different people using. Incredibly humiliating. 36 hours into this experiment, a prisoner identified as number 8612 started suffering psychologically. Yeah. He began crying uncontrollably. He showed disorganized thought and he would fly into rages. And I think in a documentary, 8612 was a ringleader in the rebellion. So he got pretty harsh treatment after the rebellion. But then 36 hours, he started having severe psychological distress. Even the runners of the experiment noted that they began to fall into the mindset of a prison. And Zimbardo said himself, he was like, I think he's being manipulative because he wants to get out. Mind you, these anyone in this experiment can leave at any time. But even Zimbardo himself, he's like, he's just trying to get out of here. He is trying to get out of here. Let him go. Yeah. Zimbardo offered to make him a snitch so he would stay in exchange for better treatment by the guards. So he was like, hey, if you, like, tell, give us information, we'll, like, make sure you're treated better. And again, like, Zimbardo's not thinking as a researcher or experimenter at this time. He is thinking as a prison superintendent. And one of the consultants helping out called 8612 weak. And 8612 told the other prisoners there was no way for them to escape. He's like, we're stuck in here forever. And if you listen to the, if you watch the documentary, they have like audio recordings and he is hysterical. He is screaming. He's crying. He's begging to be released. He really started losing his grip on reality. Finally, the researchers realized he was in a really, really bad place mentally and he was removed from the experiment. Oh, thank God. So then a rumor started going around that 8612 would be back. And, like, for a prison escape and release. And this was on the same day that that visitors were allowed to come into the prison. So both, I'm going to talk, try to talk about these in a way that makes sense. But both of these things are happening kind of at the same time. So family okay. and friends of the prisoners were allowed to visit for one hour. The researchers manipulated the environment to seem better than what the prisoners were actually living for three days. They washed all the cells allowed the prisoners to clean themselves. They're all given a big meal. Music was playing on the intercom. 
So the loved ones wouldn't be like, wow, this is criminal, you know? Like, this is an actual prison. Yeah. So the visitors' themselves uh, were also given rules. Before registering, visitors had to wait 30 minutes before even being allowed to go in. Before going in, parents had to discuss what was going on with their son with the warden. Only two people could see a prisoner for 10 minutes. So, but it wasn't like you get 10 minutes and you get 10 minutes. Only two people could be allowed to go see the prisoner for only 10 minutes. What the fuck? It was originally supposed to be for an hour, but they only got 10 minutes with each of the prisoners. A guard had to stand watch over the entire visit and all the all of the visitors complied with the rules. Some of the parents were like, this is weird. Yeah. What's going on here? But they all complied. Some parents tried bargaining with the researchers to get their sons better treatment after they saw their son's conditions. And the researchers even manipulated the parents. So this is a quote from Zimbardo. It's a quote. When one mother told me she had never seen her son looking so bad, I responded by shifting the blame from the situation to her son. What's the matter with your boy? Doesn't he sleep well? Then I asked the father, don't you think your boy can handle this? He bristled. Of course he can. He's a real tough kid, a leader. Turning to the mother, he said, come on, honey, we've wasted enough time already. And to me, see you again at the next visiting time. I don't care if it's my husband that says that. I'm fighting everyone in there. If I think my kid's (laughs) getting mistreated, someone's getting hit. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, there is a rumor for this mass escape going on. So, after the visiting hours were done, Zimbardo, he started, again, he was acting not as a researcher, but acting as, so, like, he, he stated in his on his website, he said that instead of acting like researchers and seeing how this would play out, they began acting like they were in charge of a prison and how to prevent an escape. So the researchers decided to plant a Confederate prisoner to learn about the details of the escape, and Zimbardo even reached out to the local police department to see if they could transfer the prisoners to their jails. No. The police said no. Of course. Thank God. Because <laughs> they're not actual prisoners. They're college students in an experiment. I feel like I just keep having to say that over and over again. <laughs> so this is a plan that Zimbardo came up with. This is what they did. After the visits, the researchers took apart the jail. They brought in more guards. They chained the prisoners together, put bags over their heads, and then took them up to a different floor until the time of the planned escape had passed. So Zimbardo was, like, in the deconstructed jail, and he was waiting for these 8612 and all of his friends to come in and, like, break all the prisoners out. And Zimbardo would be like, it's over. They all went home. Your escape failed. There was no escape. There was no escape attempt. This was just a rumor. Oh, my God. But that was what they did. And then after that, they would bring prisoners back and beef up security. And they even discussed, this did not happen, but they talked about bringing 8612 back and re-imprisoning him as they had let him go under false pretenses. What the fuck? No. So this is another quote from Zimbardo. I was sitting there all alone, waiting anxiously for the intruders to break in. When who, would, when who should happen along but a college and former Yale graduate student roommate, Gordon Bauer. Gordon had heard we were doing an experiment, and he came to see what was going on. I briefly described what we were up to, and Gordon asked me a very simple question. 
Say, what's the independent variable in a study? I will explain that in just a second. Okay. To my surprise, I got really angry at him. Here I had a prison break on my hands. The security of my men and the stability of my prison was at stake, and now I had to deal with this bleeding heart liberal academic FTA ding dong who was con- concerned about the independent variable. It wasn't until much later that I realized how far into my prison role I was at that point, that I was thinking like a prison superintendent rather than a research psychologist. Wow, he got sucked into his own shit. Really? And this Bad. is three days. Three days into the experiment. So for those not experimental, not familiar with experimental research, like most people. So I just wanted, just so you understand. So an independent variable is a very critical component of an experiment. So the independent variable, it's the piece of the study that influences the dependent variable or what you measure. So you measure the dependent variable in accordance to the implementation of the independent variable. And this is the example I came up with um, to try to make it easier to explain. So, for example, you are performing a study on sleep habits. Mm -hmm. You want to see if screen time impacts sleep quality. You have two identical groups that are the same in every way, same controlled variables like food, nighttime routine. One group is exposed to 30 minutes of screen time before bed, while the other group sits in silence for 30 minutes. The screen time is an independent variable. And the quality of sleep is a dependent variable. Okay. You're not really performing an experiment if you don't have an independent variable that can influence the outcome of one group compared to a control group. Right. It's the thing that's different. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's what an experiment is. And at this point, there's no experiment going on. This is very intense role play. There is not anything that the experimenters are in control of that is influencing the study. They are watching something happen in real time. That is not an experiment. That is an observation. Wow. So, turns out, like I said, the rumor of the breakout was just a rumor. This angered the researchers and the guards and the prisoners were severely punished for this. They were humiliated and essentially tortured for hours on end with more counts, more push-ups, physical exercise for hours at a time. What did they do? Nothing. Oh, my God. But again, uh, this, they are devolving into this horrible authoritarian mindset. So the next day, Zimbardo had a previous prison chaplain come in to comment on the realism of the prison experiment. He was like, look at how realistic this is. And he noted that half the prisoners introduce themselves by ID number rather than their name. So they're already starting to lose their, like, oh, personalize no. themselves. So the chaplain offered to get the prisoners legal help to get them out of prison. He was like, I can help you get in contact with a lawyer to get you out of prison. This is not a prison. This is an experiment. So Zimbardo even mentioned how this further blurred the lines between the simulation and reality. Wow. So we're, we're about to cover a really intense moment. How are, you, how are you feeling so far, Emily? This is stressful. It's very stressful. It's very, very intense. So another prisoner given the ID number 819, he also started displaying psychological distress by day four. He was no longer eating. He just, he was only requesting a doctor and he started crying hysterically. Mm-hmm. So Zimbardo 
as he was taking care of 819, one of the guards made the remaining prisoners chant, Prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner. Because of what Prisoner 819 did, my cell is a mess, Mr. Correctional Officer. And even in a documentary, you can hear all the prisoners say, 819 is a bad prisoner. 819 is a bad prisoner. 819 is a bad prisoner. 819 became extremely upset. He was inconsolable, crying uncontrollably. Zabardo was trying to remove him from the experiment. 819 said he can't because he couldn't leave. He was not a bad prisoner. And he had to prove that he was not a bad prisoner. So Zimbardo said, quote, at this point, I said, listen, you are not 819. You are name. And my name is Dr. Zimbardo. I am a psychologist, not a prison superintendent. And this is not a real prison. This is just an experiment. And those are students, not prisoners just like you. Let's go. He stopped crying suddenly, looked up at me like a small child awakened from a nightmare and replied, okay, let's go. End quote. Oh my God. So he, he left the experiment. And at one point, another prisoner had left the experiment, but I didn't see in my, the multiple sources that I found, I couldn't find anything about this third prisoner that had left the experiment. Maybe they were just like, I'm yeah. tired of this. And I'm going to go. So because the study had lost three prisoners at this point, a new prisoner, number 416, was a new addition after 819 left. So he had... This is his first time seeing this group. He was not slowly indoctrinated into this power dynamic yeah. like the rest of the prisoners. So he was horrified at the treatment that was being done. And he actually went on hunger strikes to try to leave the experiment. He was like, I'm, I'm not going to eat until you let me go. The guards threw him in solitary confinement a lot longer than a set upon time. So... The, the researcher said you could only put someone in solitary confinement for up to an hour. He was in there for a lot longer than an hour. Other prisoners were even saying, like, you can't leave. This is a real prison. You can't leave. They won't let you go. The prisoners were then given a choice. They could either give up their blankets and free 416 from solitary, or he would spend the night there and they could keep their blankets. Not one prisoner gave up their blankets. Oh, my God. And 416... The guards wanted to keep 416 in solitary all night. The researchers did pull him out of solitary Good. and put him back in a cell. So he was not there all night, but he was in there for a long time. And in the documentary, Zimbardo says they called solitary confinement the hole. And it was literally just a closet with no rooms, nothing in it. It's just like a very small, like maybe three by three closet. Jesus. So the next day, I believe this is day five. Prisoners who believed they were eligible for parole were, cha- uh, they're all chained up and brought before the, quote, parole board. So this was a group of faculty and graduate students who they had no familiarity with the prisoners and they were going to act as a parole board. And the head of the parole board was a prison consultant who was an ex-convict. So Zimbardo talked about the transformation from all the participants in the study. The prisoners obeyed every command, even in front of the parole board. And they did everything they were asked when they were asked. They could have left. Like, again, here, anytime, they could have just been like, I can just leave. They never did. And even the prison consultant who took on being the head of the parole board, he turned awful. uh, Zimbardo said he was completely loathed by everyone in the study. 
quote, he literally became the most hated authoritarian official imaginable, so much so that when it was over, he felt sick at who he had become. His own tormentor, who had previously rejected his annual parole request for 16 years when he was a prisoner. So he became the very man that he hated. Oh, my God. Because of this experiment. So by the fifth day, four prisoners had left the experiment. So I think 416 did leave. Okay. Um, more probably would have left if they felt as if they had a choice, but most of the prisoners began thinking it was a real prison and they could not leave or escape. So on that fifth night, Zimbardo said that he was contacted by parents to call a lawyer to get their sons out of prison. And this lawyer did come in and talk to prisoners, even though he, the lawyer knew this was an experiment. He was still talking to the participants saying like, hey, I can help you get out of prison. Wow. This is at Stanford University. What the like, fuck? Like, this is in a basement. Again, those lines just keep getting more and more blurred. The end of the study. It was at this point Zimbardo realized they could not continue with the study. The prisoners were showing more and more psychological effects, and some of the guards were starting to get out of control. They learned that on the night shifts, while the guards believed the researchers were not observing them, there were more things going on. Um, I don't know to what extent. I didn't really see a whole lot but on the website. Zimbardo kind of hints there was physical and maybe even sexual assault going what? on. What the fuck? Yeah. Ah. So, yeah, this is, is so bad. So Christina Malash was a PhD student who was brought in to conduct interviews with the participants. She gave one look at the conditions of the prison, and when she came in, the prisoners were all being marched to the toilets, chained together with bags over their heads. She went the fuck off. She was like, what are you doing? These are college boys and they are suffering. You are responsible. What the hell is going on here? This is an experiment and they have bags over their heads. She was the only person between all the participants the researchers, the parents, the outside contacts, the parole board, everyone who had any kind of contact with the study. She was the only one that said it went too far. And Zabardo was like, yeah, you're right. So after six days, the study was supposed to last for two weeks. After six days, the study was terminated. Also, um, Christina Malash and Zimbardo married the next year. Okay. What the? F <laughs> uh. And by all accounts, it, like, so I will say, Zimbardo has one hundred percent been like, this was fucked. Yeah. Like we messed up. We were not, we were not psychologists. We were not researchers. Like we, the lines were too blurred. And I'll go more yeah. into what he says in a little bit um, that I wrote down. So, oh, I wrote it right here. So Zimbardo said that his dual role in the experiment as principal researcher and superintendent clouded his judgment. He should have only been one or the other. I was thinking that he earlier. He lost his objectiveness. Yeah. yeah he, he lost his objectiveness in that role of wanting the prison to function like a prison and wanting to get results from his experiment. So he even said he was like, I should have just been one or the other. Yeah. And someone else, like if I was a superintendent, I should have someone providing oversight over me so i didn't over get out of bounds or he should have just been a neutral objective researcher yeah. that didn't let things get out of hand so on his website zimbardo talks about the three types of guards that emerged from the experiment which th this became very clear by the fifth day so there were 
guards that followed the rules but were not cruel. They were just like, hey, these are the rules of the prison. You gotta follow them. There were guards that who did little favors for prisoners and treated them with kindness. They would get prisoners extra food. They wouldn't have a hand in the yeah, you know the cruelty. And then about a third of the guards, which was three, because there were only nine, a, um, a third of the guards were cruel and aggressive to the prisoners. They seemed to enjoy the power they had and thought of horrible ways to humiliate and torment the prisoners. So there's one guard that was especially cruel. He was given the nickname John Wayne. Oh, no. But he, he was actually in the documentary, and he explained some of his reasoning why he behaved the way he did and why he filled the role he did. And it was like, I knew that they wanted a prison guard, and I kind of wanted to play with you know, acting in a way that I normally wouldn't. But he did say that he was disgusted by the way he acted after the fact. And he he did regret how he acted. So, and then there are also behaviors that the prisoners engaged in to cope with the stress of the experiment. So in the beginning, some prisoners fought against the guards. But like we talked about, that was quickly quashed. Mm -hmm. Four became really psychologically distressed and had to leave. One prisoner, upon hearing that his parole request had been rejected, developed a rash all over his body. Oh, my God. His stress was so significant. And other prisoners tried doing everything they were asked, were completely compliant. They were like, I'm just going to be a good prisoner. I'm not going to get in any trouble. And there was no camaraderie or unity among the prisoners. They were all isolated, just trying to survive. And the guards had complete control over every prisoner. So after the experiment ended, all the participants were brought together to talk about their experiences. And the prisoners had an opportunity to speak how their treatment impacted them. So in the documentary, uh, number 416 confronted John Wayne about how he was treated. So John Wayne explained he was just fulfilling a role. He wasn't, that wasn't me. That was like, I was just, I was just playing yeah. a part. He wanted to be a terrifying prison guard for the experiment, so he says. And for once it said, no, he wanted to behave that way. Everyone was fulfilling a role in the experiment, and he chose to be cruel when he didn't have to. Sure. Yeah. And like I said, the, the, this participant, the guard, he did regret his actions looking back on the experiment. He was sickened about how he treated the prisoners. And he even said, he's like, that wasn't me. Like, I, you know, I don't think of myself as a cruel mean person but i definitely yeah. was in this experiment the documentary explains how none of the other guards did anything to stop the cruel treatment of the prisoners even the good guards so the good guards saw everything that was happening and not once did they try to stop or say it was going too far and zimbardo also stated that throughout the entire study not a single guard quit or was late or left early or wanted overtime pay and then the Jo quote-unquote John Wayne, he said the outcome of the experiment showed why people who are being abused or don't always stick up for themselves or leave, they feel really powerless and that those who are in power become corrupted. Yeah. Wow. And he, experiment he experienced that firsthand. So there were some several like prison riots that happened after it, not related to the experiment, but just at this moment in time, there were some really severe prison riots that happened some really significant abuses that were going on there. I think there was a prison in the middle East when there were like um, American prisoners there and they were all like tortured and the experiment itself has gotten a lot of mm -hmm. criticisms. 
one of them being like okay you have shown how middle class white males between the age of like 18 and 24 react in this situation but they were all like that same demographic there were no there there weren't people younger or older than that there are no people of color there are no women in the experiment so it's hard to generalize this experiment to all people because it was such a narrow population and then just criticisms of the researchers of course but uh, Zimbardo he went on he continued to teach at Stanford he from what I saw he didn't develop any more of like these kinds of experiments I think this was kind of thank god done but he continued to do research on authority and I think he used more like naturalistic situations like actual prisons to do more of his research um and he actually Oh God, there's one picture of, it says John Wayne's sidekick smiling. That man looks happy to be there holding his stick. I don't like that. Yeah. yeah and like, that's kind of what Zimbardo was saying. Like none of them, all the guards wanted to be there. Every guard wanted to be there. They were never late. They never missed a day. They never called out sick. I mean, it was only six days, but still. Zimbardo, he wrote a book called The Lucifer Effect, and it's kind of like his thoughts in the summary of the prison experiment. It talks about the different roles that people will fulfill. Mm -hmm. Like, will they become violent? Will they become submissive? And then there's this this prison called the Abu Ghraib Detention Center, and there was a lot of abuses that were going on at Mm -hmm. this prison. And there was a riot there. Um, But it was just kind of that was just part of everything like this is kind of how prisons worldwide start falling into these power dynamics and then so zimbardo currently has a project called the heroic imagination project and it's a nonprofit wanting everyone to kind of be a little hero every day so he's currently working with gang like former gang Mm -hmm. members with people that were in like terroristic groups and like seeing how people reform themselves like how they were violent people but now they're trying to do things that better their community zimbardo like and i want to say this like with all the faults of this experiment like zimbardo is not a bad man i don't think any of these people are bad people again this is a look at how authority affects your behavior um, and again, this is not generalized. This is just specific to this experiment where people who are like, I'm not a bad person. Like, I've never done anything violent in my life. When they were given this opportunity to be in power, they did become violent. Whereas if they are not in that position of power, they are right. not violent. You know what I mean? So, like, does that make a bad person? You know, all these kind of phys- philosophical things. But Zambardo himself, he is not a bad man. He is not an evil man. I think the experiment really just got away from everyone i think it did too but it does it does seem like he has really tried to work to correct this and has really tried to put a lot of good into the world he again like he tries to support people who have suffered from these kinds of effects he has done research on mind control on cults um because again it's a power dynamic so he's just he's done a lot of stuff and he is still alive he i think he still lives in california is he still married to his wife yeah 
Christina Malash. They married in 1972, and from all accounts, they are still married. Wow. Yeah. It's a long time. Um, and you can look up a lot more about Philip Zimbardo. He, I mean, he's 90. He's lived a very long, full life that I'm not going to cover in this because this is just about the Stanford Prison Experiment. But um, if you want more information about the Stanford Prison mm-hmm. Experiment, he has a website called prisonexp.org. And this is Zimbardo's website. Um, you can look up the story of the experiment. You can look up. Um, he even has a whole section on like criticisms of the study, kind of giving that balanced, yeah, you know, look. Like, yes, we have a lot of criticisms, and here are links to all of those criticisms. Cool. And like his other works, documentaries. Um, there is a movie. That, like I said in the beginning, made in 2015. I have, maybe if we do the, the, the idea, uh, yeah, Patreon thing where we watch movies, maybe we'll do that yeah. one. I would want to watch it first and make sure it's not too intense because from the, the trailer is very, yeah. very intense. And I think they really pulled a lot from that documentary. Oh, and let me mention the documentary. So I found it on YouTube. It's 30 minutes, but it's called the Stanford Prison Experiment Documentary. Um, I, I have a link to it on nice. YouTube. And I think there's a couple other documentaries. But <clears throat> That was wildly fascinating and terrifying. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what to think about it. You don't have to think anything oh about it. Oh, my God. It. It's okay. <laughs> and honestly, like, I, I had a really hard time developing a skit for this episode because it is so intense i was like how do i even i didn't want to take the perspective of any of the the prisoners yeah or really the guards because i felt like a skit between the two of us weirdos wouldn't do it justice so um and honestly i thought about playing like a little bit of a documentary instead of a skit um but I was like, oh, no, that might be weird. and might be hard to hear. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that is a little dive into my world of psychology. It's not all scary. <laughs> like this. It's not all scary. A lot of it is, though. Yeah, well. There, there are a lot of really scary psychological experiments. Well, out there. I mean, like, how else are you going to know some things without just being completely unethical about it? Yeah, and there's a reason we have ethics boards. Yeah, <laughs> like there are some things so, some... that like we know because somebody was like fucked up at one point, and it's like I'm glad I know that, but also I wish I didn't because that means you didn't do that thing. Right. Um, in my my looking through, there's something called the forbidden experiment, and these are experiments focused on feral children. Oh, God, yes. Um, Oh, that's so sad. So it's like you can't. So like I said, a true experiment is you have an independent variable that you control, that you are in control of to measure the outcome. You cannot just throw a child into the woods and see how they develop. No. You can't do that. That's why it's a forbidden experiment. Did those things happen? Yeah. Yeah. Or were children just found in the woods after being raised by monkeys or something? Yeah, it's happened. There's experiments where, oh gosh, like they were seeing like 
like nature versus nurture and they had monkeys and like little baby little monkey babies and they're like okay will they respond to a cold steel tube that feeds them food or will they respond to a soft warm blanket that doesn't give them food and they all went to the soft warm blanket because it was like comforting and like a mom there's uh, the experiment of little Alfie who's this little boy and they're um, doing experiments with behavior and fear responses and so in generalization so they made him afraid of a small white mouse they every time he saw the little white mouse they would play a really loud noise and this is like a two or three year old bless that baby baby. so whenever he saw the mouse they would play a really loud noise and he learned to become afraid of small white things but that generalized to all white things like fuzzy white soft so he was afraid of pillows he was afraid of marshmallows he was afraid like anything that was small and white he developed a intense fear response to and this was done in like the 60s i think fuck those guys because all the all the pictures are in black and white yeah fuck those guys and i stand by what i said fight i'm telling you i would fight somebody (laughs) I know, I know. And I think the mom was there for, like, everything, because he was two or three. So the parents were there, but I don't think they really understood, like, the psychological effects that it would have. And again, like, this is another kind of, like, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Yeah. But it's because of that experiment we know yeah. about generalization and about conditioning, res- like, responses to unrelated stimuli and this built off Pavlov's experiments where he with the dogs and the bell and the horrible surgeries they were doing to these dogs and I'm not going to go into that because that will make you it will sad. make me sad please don't I'm not I'm not thank you there are just there are a lot it's I'm glad that all that psychology doesn't happen psychology used to be a really <laughs> scary field it's not anymore just m- medicine in general used to be fucking wild literally if a woman was just too outspoken they're like you have hysteria uh here's an orgasm like Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure it helped but or leeches or leeches let me literally suck the blood out of you here's some cocaine like (laughs) the fuck yeah shit's crazy so um yeah that's it that's the end um i do i do recommend looking more into it i couldn't yeah. cover every single piece of it um it is a very interesting topic and it is important for us to know um but i highly recommend checking out the sources i've linked in the show notes yeah. um, we have an instagram we have an email illequippedhistory at gmail.com we have a Facebook page and group. Yeah. Um, the group is Ill-Equipped History Podcast. Is that what the page is as well? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have a TikTok. You can catch some some funny videos there. All of our videos are hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> if I do say so myself. I mean, we think they are. <laughs> I laugh at them. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a Patreon. Yeah. Um, and you should donate to it. The $1 tier gives you a shout out and a sticker. And the $5 tier gets you those and access to our monthly bonus episodes. And maybe someday the the movie idea. Maybe. That we want to do. Yes. 
Um, and we talked about it in our bonus episode. Yeah. So, so check out the Patreon to hear what that is. Um, <laughs> but uh, do you want to play another clip from the bonus episode? Let's play. Yeah, we can play another clip. Cool. Let's listen to it now. During this time, the signal cord needed to run a telegraph wire through a 70, 70, 70 foot long pipe um, that was about eight inches in diameter. But dirt and soil had sifted through the corrugated sections of the pipe joinings, filling in as much as half of the pipe in areas. So that would only give Smokey about four inches in some areas. So they tied... Okay, I'll just tell the... Wynn has a a quote that he said. So, quote, I tied a string, tied to the wire, tied a string to the wire, to Smokey's collar and ran to the other end of the culvert. Smokey made a few steps in and then ran back. Come, Smokey, I said sharply, and she started through again. When she was about 10 feet in, the string caught up and she looked over her shoulder as much as to say, what's holding us up here? The string loosened from the snag and she came on again. By now, the dust was rising from the shuffle of her paws and she crawled through the dirt and mold and I could no longer see her. I called and pleaded, not knowing for certain whether she was coming or not. At last, about 20 feet away, I saw two little amber eyes and heard a faint whimpering sound. At 15 feet away, she broke into a run. We were so happy at Smokey's success that we patted and praised her for a full five minutes. Oh, she deserves it. She does. Because not only was that very helpful, it was so helpful because this act saved 250 ground crewmen from having to move around and keep operational 40 United States fighters and reconnaissance planes because it was kind of um, dangerous to have them out. And while um, the, so it prevented them from days worth of work trying to dig this up, to lay this down, to put it back in. What, what would have taken them days took her minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ha ha. That was funny. (laughs) Yeah. And there's another bonus episode coming out tomorrow. First of December. It is. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be fine. It's fine. (laughs) No, we have a really fun idea. um, Because we're recording this in the future or the past. I don't know anymore. (laughs) (laughs) We're recording in the past for the future. Thank you. You're welcome. It only took us four episodes to get so, that right. So, okay. Us us here in the past, um, we haven't recorded it yet, which, and you'll hear it tomorrow, but that's a good one. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I have yeah. some, some fun ideas. <laughs> I haven't thought of shit about it yet, so I will come up <laughs> with some good ideas. Okay. Well, we're going to go so we can go to bed. Uh, don't do experiments about prisons. Don't lose your objectivity in an experiment with human subjects. Yeah. Maybe 
maybe don't do prison experiments on on human subjects. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't do that. Don't do that. I mean, I would say, like, limit human experimentation, but I've also done a human experiment, so... I mean, it has to be um, ethical, of course. Yes. Perform ethical human experiments. Give them informed consent. Always follow the number one cardinal rule. Do no harm. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know what? If the IRB, which is the the ethics review board, yeah, says no, you, you gotta you gotta change it up. Yeah, shut her <laughs> down. <laughs> uh, okay. I had to do what? so Sorry. much training. Yeah. When I, uh, I had to design an experiment um, for my thesis, and I had to have so much training because I was doing a human experiment. Yeah. That sounds a lot more intense. I was teaching a meditation technique to children Uh and i was measuring the effectiveness of this meditation technique it's not it's not crazy um and it was all done virtually so but i had to do so much training like i had to watch all these videos about ethical practices and like human experimentation and like what are appropriate and and inappropriate behaviors and like how to not be a dick essentially But it was like like eight hours of videos I had to watch just to even apply for IRB approval for my experiment. Oh my god! So, but it's it's important. And it necessary, is. It so is. I'm not complaining. About Absolutely. It, <laughs> okay. So. K bye. K bye.